I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to this latest episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that, in a way, uh, contributed to the inspiration for this entire podcast. It would have been mm, maybe seven years ago. I was in uh, Colorado Springs visiting some friends, and while we were in their downtown area, I found myself passing by the local contingent of the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. It was a couple dozen people in the kind of town square of Colorado Springs with protest signs that all that had all the kinds of things that you would expect for, uh, to find on them. And they were peacefully and, you know, fairly politely making their message known. Now, the Occupy movement... Uh, if you all remember that, had started over frustrations with members of the top 1% in, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, as, as well as with economic inequality generally. It was big in New York's Zuccotti Park, but it had satellite protests in almost every major city across the U.S. Occupy Wall Street was one of those movements that while I entirely sympathized with their, their basic idea, in income inequality is, is certainly a concern, I could never totally get behind them or, or their cause because, at, at least to me, while they were very clear about what they were against, they were never clear on what they were for. Don't like the rich, that the rich keep getting richer while the middle class slowly disappears? I understand that frustration entirely. But what exactly are you proposing that we do about it? And it's not to say that there aren't potential solutions for the problem. There are. Loads of them. My issue with the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, in, 
in the fashion of, of a fair amount of modern protest movements, they decided that the best way to remain true to the spirit of their ideals was to have no governing leadership or really any guiding principles. And, and people may want to argue with me on that, but at least from, from my perspective as a, uh, as a viewer of this, that's what I got. Uh, it's kind of a clever move on their part. Because once you put forward a leader, that person can be attacked on a personal level by anyone who's opposed to your movement. They, they become a lightning rod and, and can wind up distracting from your overall message. Likewise, once you put forward your proposal to, to solve the problem that you're protesting against, that too can be picked apart and dissected. It might even include provisions that might lose you support from some people. So instead, you just never put forward a solution and you can never be attacked for what that solution might have been. The problem is that what you wind up with when you create these kinds of seemingly rudderless movements is a lot of angry people with, with nothing to guide them, with no proposed solution there's no marker to judge progress. If you never set a goal, then there's no way that you can fail. But unfortunately, there's also no way that you can succeed. So I have to say that I have, and, and at the time had, an, a natural distrust when it came to movements without any kind of philosophical or intellectual grounding. And again, I'm, I'm sure to some people I'm I sound like I'm being unfair to the Occupy movement, and I don't mean to be. Uh, but this is why, again, seven years ago, I, I walked up to one of the protesters in Colorado Springs and maybe with just a little bit of snarkiness, asked them what exactly they were for. Now, the man I started talking to was middle-aged and, and entirely polite, uh, and he started to tell me, about the evils of Wall Street and, and how the middle class was being hurt. And I agreed with him. Uh, but once again, I asked, well, what do you think we should do about it? Because again, whether or not I support you is going to depend entirely on what you think we should do about it. He hedged again, but I eventually coaxed an answer out of him. Uh, he told me that the first thing we need to do is make sure that our money is backed by something. Now, I'm not sure how having a currency backed by something would solve income inequality, but I gave the guy credit, and you should too, because that was the first time I had heard any member of the Occupy movement put forward any kind of proactive proposal. Of course, I responded by saying, yeah, but isn't the price of gold or silver just another arbitrary value too? He seemed a little taken aback by that, but he came back to me by saying, well, it, it doesn't have to be backed by metals, just backed by something. Before I could comment that our currency is backed by something, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, a young lady who I assume was one of the organizers of Occupy Colorado Springs had noticed our conversation and had uh, beelined it over to see what, what exactly I was up to. 
she broke up the conversation and rather insistently wanted to know what I was doing there. Uh, I think she was probably worried I was uh, either a reporter or, you know, there to start trouble. But that was pretty much the end of it. She asked me to leave their protest, and I did. But in the brief back and forth there, it was the seed of what would eventually become, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong. This guy that I was talking to, again, a perfectly nice person, with very real concerns about very real problems, had decided that one of the key problems in our economy was that our currency wasn't backed by any sort of commodity. Now, and and I don't want to pick on this guy, whoever he was, but I, I doubt he had any sort of background in economics or even a general understanding of monetary policy in the U.S. But the idea that our currency wasn't backed by anything, even though it is, it really struck me and, and, and just how much it stuck in this guy's craw. And while I don't agree with him, I understand why he would feel that way. If you haven't spent a fair amount of your life engrossed in the subject, and, and trust me, I totally understand if that's not an enticing idea to some of you out there, it can seem a little crazy that money is just, well, paper. The idea of money having value, but not really because it's really just a social construct that we all use to make transactions easier, can be a little mind-bending. And I get that. After all, money has to have value. It's what we use to buy stuff. How can it not have value? And if it's backed by something, then of course it would have value. It would, it would ha- have the value of the thing that was backing it because that value would never change or be subject to negative effects, right? Well, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. I mean, it's right there in the title. But I do want to take a minute to clarify that the purpose of this podcast is not to laugh at that guy in Colorado Springs. It's it's not to mock him for not understanding monetary policy. It's not to belittle any of you if you agreed with him. It's, it's not and never has been about me sitting here saying, I know so much and you're all so dumb. The point of the podcast is that economics is a complicated subject, and one, unfortunately, that most people aren't required to learn in the course of their education, uh, especially not at, at, at the level where you, you really get an understanding of, of how you know the complexities work. This is made doubly unfortunate because almost every aspect of your life is affected by economics. And there are any number of people out there, most of whom are not economists, that will tell you that you you don't need to have an in-depth knowledge of the subject. You just have to repeat the mantras that they give you when it comes to the economy. I'm sure that all of us, at some point in our lives, have made a comment in a conversation regarding the economy based purely on the fact that we've heard someone say the same thing and it sounded kind of smart. Believe me, when I was younger, I did that kind of thing all the time. The point of this podcast is to offer all of you out there who didn't go to school for economics a place where you can learn about just how complicated the subject is and get a little smarter when it comes to economic issues. I still want to fully explain to that guy in Colorado Springs why commodity-based currency isn't a cure-all for the economy. And I hope that he's 
become a listener out there, because that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. After this very long wind-up, we're going to be talking about the gold standard. Now, this probably won't be the final word on the subject. As noted, it's complicated. But I think we can consider this a, a fair introduction, and hopefully I can line up guests in the future to talk about this in, in more granular detail. Anyway, let's get into it. Now, we've already touched on, on the idea back in one of our Wealth of Nations episodes. Adam Smith took us through the origins of money and the basic idea of, of using precious metals first as currency itself and then as something used to back currency. So what does it mean to have a precious metal standard for currency? Uh, well, a lot of people would answer that by saying that such a standard means that every dollar in circulation is backed by gold or, or pick the precious metal of your choice. That's not quite right now, is it? A true precious metal standard, or to get right to the heart of, of what we're talking about, a true gold standard, means that the price of the unit of currency, for our purposes the dollar, is fixed by declaration of the government or central bank at a certain quantity of gold. So let's say that the fixed rate, which is usually referred to as a peg, uh, so the fixed rate is pegged at uh, one ounce of gold is equal to $10. That rate is, of course, ridiculous, but I'm just using it as an example to keep the math easy. Anyway, that rate, one ounce to $10, isn't just for accounting purposes. Under a true gold standard, the, the ratio is actually an exchange rate. It means that at any point in time, under a gold standard, you could go into a bank and insist on an ounce of gold in exchange for $10. Or, you could take in an ounce of gold and exchange it for $10. Now again, I, I, I use the term true gold standard because over the course of human history, there have been a lot of variations of this idea, and not all of them involve the ability to freely exchange currency for precious metals. Those variations are kind of they're, they're kind of precious metal standard, but they're not a true precious metal standard. And of course, I keep dropping the term precious metal instead of just saying gold, because gold is not the exclusive metal that can be used to peg a currency to. Silver's been used instead of gold, or in addition to gold in the past. The Romans used copper, because that's what they had enough of to create a usable currency. So you might be asking... If the type of metal can change, then, then why is gold the prominent one that gets brought up? You may also be answering that yourself by saying that, well, it's got to be because gold is valuable. Well, not necessarily. Gold does have a few beneficial qualities when it comes to using something in a, a standard for currency. It's relatively rare, but not so rare that an adequate quantity of it can't be found. It's heavy, which makes it hard to steal in large quantities. And as Smith pointed out, it can be easily divided. You can take one a one-pound brick of gold and break it up into one-ounce pieces, 
with with a great deal of precision. Uh, likewise, you can take a bunch of one ounce pieces and fuse them together into a one pound brick of gold. Gold can be useful in a lot of ways, and this concept of pegging currency to something like gold is one of those things that gets a lot of traction out there amongst people, especially those who are, are weary of the government, because it's simple and easy to understand. The money in my wallet is simply a representation, a, a stand-in for gold. And if I ever wanted to, I could exchange that money for that amount of gold. And I would have security in that ability to do so. It makes sense. Or at least in what may be coming a, a new catchphrase on this podcast, it makes enough sense. Except there are some serious issues with that concept. Issues that chip away at, at exactly how much sense a gold standard makes. First of all, people seem to get a, a warm fuzzy from the idea of their that their currency can be exchanged for gold because they feel that it gives them financial security in, in the event of an economic calamity. Now, this is more than a little foolish. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, in the event of a true economic collapse, the idea that your money would no longer be usable, but your gold would be, is pretty silly. If we devolved into a Thunderdome-style existence, your gold would be just as worthless as your paper money. If you want a truly calamity-proof investment, invest in clean drinking water. Call it your Fury Road strategy. Beyond that, there seems to be this assumption that gold is a good thing to peg our currency to because it's got a stable value. Well, nope. If you're laboring under the delusion, please do yourself a favor and Google or Bing, no judgments here, but search for the price of gold over time. Now, you're going to want to specifically look for the real price of gold, because some shifts in value are going to be based on inflation if you're looking at the nominal price. But even if you can only find data that tracks the nominal price of gold, you're still going to see some wild swings in value. I mean, in 2013, the price of gold dropped by 27.6% over the course of the year. In 2010, it went up 30%. In 1997, it dropped by 22%. The point is that you need to stop thinking about gold as some kind of magical substance. It's not. All it is is a commodity. No different from oranges or coffee or oil. And like all commodities, its value is determined by the intersection of supply and demand, which means that its value can and will fluctuate based on those factors. And this is where we can get into some very real problems if we had a currency that was pegged to the price of gold. People like to shift to precious metals during times of economic decline. Uh, during the Great Recession of 2008, we saw the price of gold spike from $869 per ounce in 2008 to $1,531 per ounce by the end of 2011. Now, that may seem like a great thing if you're uh, heavily invested in gold, 
And in that case, it is. But when the currency moves with that value, it can create a downward spiral in the economy as a whole. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute. You're going to try to tell me that the value of our currency going up is somehow a bad thing. And yes, that's what I'm going to tell you. Because as we've talked about many, many times on this podcast, the economy is all about interconnectedness. Where we run into issues is in this scenario where the economy is steering into recession, we would see a major drop in consumption and investment across the economy. As a result, people would shift out of the increasingly unstable markets and into precious metals which would drive up the value of currency, since the commodity that the currency is pegged to is in higher demand. Unfortunately, when the value of our currency goes up, it tends to have adverse effects on our exports. Now, again, you may be saying, wait, how did we get to exports? Well, the desirability of exports from any country is based on the exchange rate between those countries involved in the trade. The lower the value of the dollar is relative to, say, the euro, the better the deal is when European countries import products from the U.S. The higher the value of the dollar relative to the euro, the more expensive our exports are relative to the substitutes available within the eurozone country that we're trying to export to. This is why when, when a politician tells you that they're going to raise the value of the dollar and increase exports, they're lying. Or I suppose more likely they just don't understand what they're talking about. The two things, with few exceptions, are mutually exclusive. If the value of the dollar goes up relative to other currencies, the market for U.S. exports is going to go down because the relative price of those products abroad is effectively going up. Such a situation would be great for the market for capital investment in the U.S. as with an increasing value to the dollar, the returns on investment get a little boost. But the manufacturing sector is going to take a big hit. If the value of the dollar is dropping, again, relative to other currencies, then capital investments in the U.S. don't seem so appealing, but our exports are effectively cheaper, and so the demand for U.S. products will go up. But, and again, with only a few rare exceptions, you can't have both. So back to our gold standard scenario. The economy is contracting, value of our gold-backed currency is increasing, which delivers a poorly timed blow to our export market, right at the point where we would desperately need a boost in exports to stimulate growth, thus sending us further into recession. The value of having a currency that's backed only by the full faith and credit of the U.S., what, what people usually derisively call a fiat currency, is that it provides the central bank, in our case the Federal Reserve, with additional tools to combat economic downturns like the one I've been using as an example here. With a currency strictly pegged to the value of a commodity, you're forced to ride out the highs and lows of the value of that commodity. With limited options for counteracting just such market fluctuations. 
with fiat currency, the Fed has the ability to inflate or deflate the value of the dollar in response to economic conditions. Just like we covered in my, my interview with Paul Laporte from the BLS, not all inflation is bad. In the event of a recession, the Fed can inflate the dollar, thus dropping its relative value, which will stimulate our export market, and that boost may be just the thing that our economy needs to get out of the contraction. You can't do that when the value of the dollar is pegged to the value of a commodity. It's one of those classic economic situations that it's entirely a trade-off. Having a gold standard should, and we'll get into that in a minute, prevent the central bank from inflating the currency, because the peg will prevent increases in the money supply. If each dollar is exchangeable for a certain quantity of gold, then the central bank can only issue as much money as they have gold, thus no inflation. But the problem is that it's precisely that the central bank then can't inflate currency at times when such a move would really benefit the economy. Having a gold standard unfortunately puts control over the value of your currency in the hands of variables that are entirely outside of your control. And an extreme example would be that if we had the dollar pegged to the price of gold and, and suddenly one day some, someone living out in Uzbekistan discovers that they are living on top of a 5,000 pound mountain of gold, then the global supply of gold will go up, and without an equal increase in demand, the price of gold will plummet, and with little recourse, so will the price of the dollar, all because a dude in Uzbekistan found more gold. That dynamic has never seemed all that stable to me. But hey, if you're more risk-averse than I am, you may be thinking that problems like this are worth it in order to prevent inflation. Because while all inflation isn't necessarily bad, all inflation isn't necessarily good either. And with a gold standard, we, we may miss out on the good inflation, and uh, but we would definitely avoid the bad inflation. And that's a perfectly legitimate stance to take. Except for one problem. A precious metal standard doesn't entirely exclude the possibility of currency devaluation. Obviously, as we've already covered, the currency under a gold standard could devalue based on finding more gold. But it can also devalue because of, well, government intervention. And the reason that we know uh, that it can is because it has. When the U.S. was first founded, our, our monetary system was established by our, our, the, our first coinage act, which set the price of a dollar at 371.25 grains of pure silver minted into a coin of 416 grains with some other alloys. Basically, the coins had to be 89.24% pure silver. Gold coins were available too for higher denominations and the ratio of gold to silver was set at 15 to 1. Within a few years however the global market price of silver dropped and threw off the set ratio so 
Silver became more useful domestically, while, while our gold coinage was more desirable for international purposes. And in an attempt to correct this imbalance that, well, they had created, Congress passed a new piece of legislation in 1834, and it changed the ratio from, uh, uh, of gold to silver to 16 to 1. It also reduced the required quantity of gold in our minted coins. This led to a major issue with lenders, as overnight, the value of their outstanding debts that they, that they had had dropped by about 2%. If you had borrowed money before 1834, you still owed the same amount in dollars, but the value of the dollar had dropped, so you effectively owned, owed less money. And this is all too common. A Adam Smith gives a long diatribe, as if he knew any other kind, uh, about kings reducing the purity of their minted coins whenever they needed to just create more money. Uh, he, he, Smith talks about this back in The Wealth of Nations. He says, quote, by means of these operations, the princes and sovereign states which performed them were enabled in appearance to pay their debts and to fulfill their engagements with a smaller quantity of silver than would have otherwise been requisite. It was indeed in appearance only, for their creditors were really defrauded of a part of what was due to them. All other debtors in the state were allowed the same privilege and might pay with the same nominal sum the new and of the new and debased coin whatever they had borrowed in the old. Such operations, therefore, have always proved favorable to the debtor and ruinous to the creditor, and have sometimes produced a greater and more universal revolution in the fortunes of private persons than could have been occasioned by a very great public calamity. So, if you want to take solace in a gold standard being a prevention against inflation, it's not... It just serves to make inflation a more dramatic and sudden impact on the economy, rather than a slow, subtle one. If the central bank is able to inflate currency by simply introducing more of it, you can create inflationary effects that are steady, at a, at a low and reasonable rate. If your only option is to, to simply decrease the exchange rate of currency for gold, then the inflationary effects are going to hit the economy like a ton of bricks. Advocates for a gold standard also have a slight misconception about the history of the U.S. monetary policy. They seem to think that we started on a gold standard, which we did not. Per our first coinage act, we were effectively on a bimetal currency. They also will tell you that we left the gold standard in 1973 which is also incorrect. The U.S. had bounced around from monetary systems throughout its history, starting with gold and silver coinage, but eventually introducing paper money that, while not considered legal tender, circulated like it, then introducing paper money as legal tender. The only period of time that the U.S. found itself on a true gold standard, per what we talked about earlier in the episode, was for a window of 54 years, from 1879 to 1933. During this period, an exchange rate was set 
for paper currency to gold, and the two could be readily exchanged for each other. In 1933, in order to combat the Great Depression, Congress authorized President Roosevelt to halt the ready exchange of paper money for gold in domestic markets, and gold was only used for international exchanges. With that, any sense of a true gold standard was gone. While the U.S. still backed its currency with gold, you could no longer exchange currency for gold. What President Nixon did in 1973 was to sever the ties between the dollar and gold entirely. And he did this because at that point, thanks to numerous economic factors, the dollar's link to gold had become impossible to maintain. Advocates for the gold standard will usually place blame on the Federal Reserve System for destroying the gold standard, but the fact of the matter is that the Federal Reserve and the gold standard coexisted for 20 years. Uh, like I pointed out before, a gold standard isn't in opposition to the existence of a central bank. It just limits the central bank's ability to respond to economic conditions. In fairness, a, a gold standard also doesn't mean that a central bank is powerless in the face of a downturn. It just means that it has fewer tools at its disposal for combating a, a contracting economy. And when people advocate for a gold standard, I think that I always have to come back to my initial response to that guy in, back in Colorado Springs. Thinking that a gold standard, or, or really any commodity-based peg, is going to make our economy run smoothly hints at a fundamental misunderstanding of, of money and value. Currency is inherently a social construct. It's something that we created to make exchanges in the market easier. It's a lot easier to purchase things with a currency than it is in, in bartering. Imagine if you had to drag a load of deer hides to the store anytime you wanted to make a purchase. And imagine if you had to accept purchases in deer hides. I mean, what are you going to do with all those deer hides? Money was created to serve as a medium of exchange. And, and yes, it's important that it have value. And it's important to the economy that it retain that value. But thinking that we're, we're dealing in an entirely binary world, where the only two options are a precious metal-backed currency or a fiat currency that's in the grip of hyperinflation is so reductionist that it fails to have any use in the conversation. You can have a stable fiat currency. It's why most countries in the world left their own precious metal standards and moved to a fiat currency. And as we've covered, gold is not a cure-all for the issues that can occur with a fiat currency. No commodity is, because their values are also social constructs. They're based on how much of them there are and how badly people want them. And those variables can wax and wane all their own. It's a hard sell, I know. We all want the world around us to be rock solid, certain, true. But the fact of the matter is, that in most things, but especially when it comes to the economy, the world around us is a lot less solid than we're probably comfortable with. Money has value. Base value. Pre 
pretty much because we all just agree that it should. It has value because we need it to have value. And commodities are no different. You can always tell this kind of thing by, by taking it to, to a, a far extreme. If gold had some sort of intrinsic value that was solid and true across all circumstances, then it would have that value even in the most extreme situations. If we all go back to the, the hunter-gatherer times, gold would be largely worthless. Yeah, cavemen might have found it to be pretty, but you can't eat it, and you can't make effective tools with it for hunting or gathering. Either way, it's not going to feed you, so it's not worth even a single deer hide. Likewise, in a post-apocalyptic future, gold isn't going to be worth anything either. Again, you can't eat it, you can't drink it, you can't protect yourself with it, it's heavy and hard to transport. You're going to be in a much better position if you have a backpack full of iodine tablets than you would if you had a backpack full of gold. Like money, gold has value only because we agree that it does. And at any point, the market can decide that it's not as valuable as it used to be, which kind of eliminates its supposed advantages as a stable store of value. And I know that I've said it before, but I've never been afraid to repeat myself on the important stuff. If you're talking to somebody that's really pushing the idea of gold or other precious metals on you, maybe take a minute to inquire if that person happens to also be selling gold, or otherwise stands to profit from it. Most of the pro-gold standard websites that I've found out there also conveniently enough, are ready and willing to sell me large quantities of gold at a moment's notice. It's very convenient. There are some advantages with having a currency pegged to gold, but even those are, are typically constrained by whether or not every other country has a similar peg. Like most things in economics, it, it comes down to a trade-off, and the fact of the matter is that there are real advantages to having a currency that isn't pegged to a commodity. The point being, a gold standard isn't going to solve most of the issues that we're facing in the economy today. It, it certainly wouldn't solve the issue of income inequality. I really do hope that that guy I talked to all those years ago winds up hearing this podcast. Again, I, I don't think he was dumb. And, and I, I don't bring up that story to make fun of them. But we run into problems when we gravitate towards the answers that make enough sense. Because it's easier to wrap our heads around, rather than embracing the, the complex and often flimsy nature of the world and situations around us in order to get to the answer that makes real sense. And that's our show. As always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, and I'm sure some of you will uh, will want to do that on this topic, the best place to do that is on our Facebook group. Uh, you can uh, search uh, Facebook for OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong, or you can check the show notes because I, I always leave a link uh, to the Facebook group in them. 
uh, come on out, join the conversation, leave a comment, or throw out a suggestion for a future episode. And if you needed any more reason to join the Facebook group, I, I not too long ago posted the uh, first OK, let me tell you why you're wrong, t-shirt design there. For those of you interested in getting some sweet merch, uh, the It Depends t-shirt will be available soon, and I'll be posting information about how to get them. Uh, and don't worry, second t-shirt uh, design will be coming soon. It will probably have something to do with Adam Smith saying things before anyone else did. Uh, not on Facebook. It's cool. You can email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. It's all one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Uh, if you do want to do uh, some of your own research and, and learn a little bit about uh, the gold standard, uh, one of the key resources I used for this episode was a report from the Congressional Research Service written by Craig K. Elwell called A Brief History of the Gold Standard in the United States. Uh, it does live up to the title. It is brief, uh, but very informative, and uh, yeah, a great a great place to start if you're interested in reading about the gold standard. Be sure to take a minute, give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, doing so really helps get the podcast noticed uh, by more people. We've been getting uh, more reviews lately, and uh, surprise, surprise, been getting a lot more listeners lately, too. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I used in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget, do have another podcast out there if you're tired of hearing me talk about economics and would rather hear me and my fiance talk about wedding planning. You can check out Let's Plan a Wedding. Uh, and of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next time with another chapter from the Wealth of Nations. With that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.